Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Despite our best intentions, consumers do not always act rationally with regards to money management. While we all know we should limit debt and increase savings, many people live day to day and have far less set aside for financial emergencies than needed. Unfortunately, most people's irrational behavior around money become exposed with the impact of the COVID-19 crisis. Across the globe, households lost their safety net of predictable events that they depended on, from a regular paycheck to savings that they had planned to set aside, but may have put off. Today's guest in the podcast is Dan Ariely, one of the foremost researchers of behavioral economics in the world, a prolific best-selling author, fintech advisor, and professor at Duke University, Ariely discusses why humans don't always act rationally about money and the result of this irrational behavior. He also shares his thoughts on how consumers and financial institutions can recover from the challenges brought on by COVID-19. Welcome to the show, Dan. What a unique time to have a PhD in both psychology and economics. I really don't think there's ever been a time in our lives when the entire foundation of human behavior has been jolted quite like it has with COVID crisis and and in such a short period of time. Your research and and writings over the years shows that while humans want to be rational in their management of money, they are impacted by a lot of outside factors that can lead them astray. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah. So first of all, uh, thank you for acknowledging that this is a good time for social science. Uh, my my first book, uh, Predictably Irrational, came out in the beginning of 2008. You know, perfect time for somebody to talk about irrationality. I think if it came out a year earlier, nobody would have paid any attention. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. These crises, both the financial crisis of 2007 and the crisis now, make it really, really clear how important is it to understand human behavior in the right way. Because... You can have a model of how people would get infected or what should we do. And if you don't take into account real behavior, you're going to miss things in a very, very bad, bad way. And a crisis like the one we have right now, it, it is really not very human to understand. We don't see viruses, obviously. The effect of getting infected is delayed. right? So you say to yourself, oh, nothing happened to me. I shook somebody's hands two days ago. Nothing happened to me. And then you, you create a sense of confidence. But the consequences are, are dire. Now, if we try to focus on the, on the financial consequences, first of all, there's a question of the stock market. And you can say, okay, uh, if you're a regular Joe and you have money in the stock market, uh, what should you do? And my general advice is two. Don't do anything and don't look. And I'll tell you why. Let's divide people into three types. Type one are the people like me. I don't have any unique knowledge about what's happening in the stock market, and I don't think I have a unique knowledge about the stock market. I'm basically generally informed, but I don't think I'm particularly qualified to to understand things better than everybody else. So that's the first type. The third type, I'm jumping, are people who have unique knowledge, and there are very few of those maybe a couple of dozens in the world, right? People who really understand things in a much, much better way than everybody else. And then the second type are the people who are 
like me who don't know much about the stock market, don't have a unique position and so on, but those people think that they do, right? So we have the people who really know something about the markets and, and recognize it. We have the people who don't know and know that they don't know. And we have the people who don't know but think they know. Those are the most dangerous people, by the way, for themselves, because those are the people who can go ahead and take actions and create tremendous devastation. So why shouldn't we take actions and why shouldn't we look? Uh, we shouldn't take actions because the stock market is not about the past, it's about the future. And if our ability to predict the future is no greater than other people, that information is already in the market and there's no reason for us to think that we can outsmart the market. And why shouldn't we look? Because human beings, as human beings, we don't make good decisions in general. And if you add panic to it, we do much worse. So here's a recipe for disaster. You wake up in the morning, you check up your stock portfolio, and then you decide to make a decision. That's just not a good recipe for decisions. If you think that something is going up or something is going down, or you have a unique view and you think you know something, maybe you should make a decision, but you should certainly not look. And we see people looking all the time, obsessively looking at the media, at the count of how many corona tests we have and how many people have been tested positive and how many people have died and what's happening to... And all of those, sadly, don't lead to good decisions. So that's when you talk about the stock market investment. I will make one exception. We all need some kind of cushion. We all need the rainy day fund. And I hope that people have saved a little bit for it. I know that many have not, but I hope that some people have. And the people who feel that they don't have enough of a cushion and they say, okay, I want to sell a little bit of my portfolio to have a bit more of a cushion to make me feel comfortable, not as an investment strategy, but as a rainy day fund, that I think is understandable. If they're going, even if they're going to lose money and, and get out of the market in this, it is right time. If somebody's saying, I need some cash just to feel that I have a month or two of money that I can live on, I think that's reasonable. So looking at what you're talking about there, which really balancing the rational with the irrational, I know that's pretty much what you've been writing about for years around the behavioral economics. What actually got you interested in behavioral economics to begin with? So actually, it was sad on a personal level, right? The corona crisis is very sad on a, on a general level right now. I was badly burned when I was 18. I was in a explosion and about 70% of my body was burned and I was in hospital for almost three years. And hospitals are amazing places to see irrational behavior. And in my particular case, it was the question of how the nurses took the bandages off me and of other patients. And you can imagine burns, right? You have no skin, bandages adhere to the flesh. It's incredibly painful. And uh, ripping them off is something that they have to do daily. They have to take the bandages off put new ointment, wrap it again, take the bandage off the next day. And the nurses believed that the right way to minimize the overall pain was to get it over and done with. So they would rip the bandages, one after the other, one after the other, as fast as possible. And because I had 70% of my body was covered with burns, it took a long time. But they tried to minimize the duration. But having those high moments of intense pain was just unbearable. And I tried to get them to do it slower. And they said, no, 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 the right approach is the fast approach. 
And then when I left the hospital a few years later and I started studying at the university, I did some experiments. I basically brought people to the lab and I delivered pain to them in different ways. Long, short, high, low, going up, going down, up and down, down and up, all kinds of versions. And what I found at the end of this was that the nurses were wrong. If you think about the overall pain of an experience, if you make it twice as long, you don't make it twice as painful. But if you take something and you make the amplitude, the intensity higher, you really made it much, much worse. So think about our discussion. If our discussion lasted 10 minutes longer, it wouldn't, people wouldn't say, oh my goodness, that was amazing, <laughs> right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't change dramatically how people view that. But if we had a few moments that were you know, insightful or useful or something like that, that would change dramatically the estimation of this episode. But what was so interesting was that the nurses had the wrong model, right? They were good people, they were kind people, they were trying to do the right thing. But their understanding of what would help their patients in the best way was just wrong. In the same way that lots of professionals have. We have intuitions. And what social science shows is that our intuitions are often not aligned with reality. So given what's going on today, I mean, obviously, what we're experiencing economically on a household level, on a small business level, is a short, intense pain. It came on very quickly. It came on unexpectedly. We were coming off of the probably the most prosperous time in, in most people's lives, uh, for the most part. Many people, if they're 21 and under, they don't remember a time that has been bad economically. But then overnight, people are caught flat-footed. You work a little bit on the, the science of saving and investing. And, and what's interesting is you know, people don't put away anything near what they know they should. They don't act rational. But with this quick jolt, this quick negative situation that's happened. What have you seen in the behavior of people recently with regard to their economic situation? So as you know, I, I work very closely with a company called Capital, uh, with a Q. And uh, through them, we have looked at uh, financial behavior. And maybe a couple of words about uh, Capital. What Capital tries to do is to help us live according to our goals. So here's what happened. When we think about spending money, there's really two questions. Spend now versus spend later. Saving is spending later. And what to spend money on. But the reality is that we can have goals, but the world wants to derail us from our goals. So imagine you go to the supermarket and you have a plan of what you want to spend and what you want to buy. The supermarket also has a plan. And the supermarket plan is not your plan. It's a different plan. And they want you to spend more and on different things. And they have an advantage over you. And their advantage is that they organize the supermarket. So you're playing in their game, in their rules. So they decide what's in the end of aisle display and what's at the height level and how to present prices and all kinds of things. And we end up making decisions that are not in our favor. So what capital does is to try and help us set up our goals for now and for later, what do we want to spend money on and, and help people get closer to those goals. And you do that by setting goals and having money automatically go to them. For example, if you think that just by having money in checking, you're saving, you're not. But if you move the money every week to a different account, there's an odds that you will actually save money for a rainy day. So 
capital has been at this uh, for a long time. And what we saw with the corona crisis is that many more people are adding emergency savings accounts. Now, you can say, oh, it's a little late. And it's true, it is a little late, but it's not zero or one. Even if you're late, it's a good opportunity. And the corona crisis has created one more thing, which is our life has changed in such a tremendous way. Uh, we have now probably months of going out less, right? All of a sudden, it's going to give us a tremendous opportunity to figure out how did we get to our level of spending and what do we enjoy and not enjoy? So with Capital, we did a study about a year ago. We showed people 40 of their recent transactions one by one. And for each of them, we said, to what extent was this a mistake? And uh, Jim, what do you think was the category that people thought was the most common category for mistakes? <laughs> Food? Yes, going out. And the reason, by the way, is that going out is a fine activity. It's wonderful. But we go out and we are at the mercy of the restaurant. And we end up drinking too much and eating too much. And uh, the next day we regret it. So there's lots of terrible things to say about this crisis. I think the good thing is that we're financially stressed, but we're going to have a time when our lives are going to be different. There's not going to be live concerts or sports events. There's not going to be going out that much, right? Things are going to be very different. Certainly not traveling abroad and maybe not even vacations. And it might help us go back to what are the kind of things that actually make us happy. And, and I, I hope it's okay. I wanted to ask you, for you, what have you learned about yourself, about what brings you happiness and, and joy and money in the last few weeks? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, I've pivoted, as they say. I used to do quite a bit of international speaking, but immediately upon shutting down of events and shutting down of um, engagements such as that, we found that organizations were asking us to write white papers, which was content that could go out to their clients and their, their companies that they serve, the banks they serve. And all of a sudden we realized, or I've, I realized over the last couple of weeks that being home is pretty good. And my desire, maybe to get on a plane, will still be there. But my desire to be in front of 5,000 people in an audience is probably going to take a lot longer for me to find that appealing so the smaller engagements, the writing at home, the home base, and, and getting to know your neighbors, I mean, it's all changed. But it's interesting because when you look at this, when you talk about building new savings plans, what capital does, that's quite a bit like what happened in the Depression with our parents. Our parents, we had the cookie jars on the counter, each one for a different event. One was for vacation. One was for, you know, going out to a dinner maybe. And, and each one was set aside. But that was a post-Depression movement, which... In a way, and as you said, it's going to depend on the length of time, how much our behaviors change. But this will not go away as from memory. And as you said also, the, the behaviors as related to the disease itself are going to help impact that longer term. Because, you know, my question was not, oh, when will stores open again? It's when will I want to go to a store again, which is completely different. Yeah. And how much time will you spend there? And, you know, the jar method, or sometimes it's called the envelope method, is actually an incredibly important idea. It's based on what we call mental accounting, that if you have, let's say, one envelope for money, it's very hard to think about where is it coming from. Money is basically all about opportunity cost. You spend money on one thing, you don't have something for something else. So if you have money in one envelope and you buy a bottle of beer, 
where is it coming from? What else would you not be able to do? But if you have it in a subcategory and you say, this is money for beer and coffee, let's say, if you're consuming it, you know there's less. So you understand the, the consequences. It actually helps you stay aligned to where you want to be. So there'll definitely be less income coming in and we have to get used to it and think about that. But we also have a really good opportunity to examine our spending. You know, at the end of the day, saving is what you have left after you finish spending. And this period now is a good period to reflect and say, what brings us happiness? I, I can tell you that personally, I didn't think I'm a nature kind of a guy. I love cities or I thought I love cities. But now I'm in a house with a yard and all of a sudden I find myself incredibly drawn to sitting outside and touching the grass. It just surprised me. So I think it's a, with all the terrible things that will happen, there will be some good things. And in terms of our financial lives, I think that's one of them. The other thing that I hope will happen is that we will stop competing on spending. Take, for example, something like kid's birthday party, right? So one kid has a cake, the other kid wants a clown and a cake, and the other one wants a clown and a cake and two balloons. And there's a you know, competition for birthday parties. But now there's an opportunity to reset it. Right? And basically said, okay, let's just calm down <laughs> and let's not compete in the same way for those things. So I don't doubt that this crisis will last for a long time. The economic devastation is going to be harsh. But I think the things we can do is to try and re-examine our spending and re-examine our happiness and redirect the less money that we will have. You know, maybe there's a way to live with less money in a better way. I, I kind of think that there is. So... You know, with that in mind, how can financial institutions beyond capital partner better with consumers to help them reach their goals? Because they've traditional banks and credit unions and all types of financial institutions have done things the way they've always done them. Right now, they're being disrupted. They, they have an opportunity to reset their own models and to find ways to help the consumer because the consumer is right now quite desperate, without a doubt. And the financial institutions now, after coming the same way as the human has over the last three weeks, have gone from massive prosperity to devastation within the industry. How can they do things to better partner with the consumer that will be both a good business decision as well as a good human decision? Yeah. So banks have kind of assumed the rational model, right? They've basically said, we're keeping your money, but it's up to you what you're going to do. But, you know, if I was your financial advisor... I could take two roles. Uh, one role that I could take is I could say, you decide how much money to put in savings and I'll tell you how to do it, stock, bonds, cash, whatever. And that provides some value, no question about it. But what banks can do is they be, can become experts in how to spend money wisely. And I think that's actually incredibly important, right? So it's not about spending or not spending, it's about how do you do things in the right way. For example, Jim, if I gave you $25 right now and I say, go ahead and spend it in a way that will bring you the most happiness, it's supposed to be a trivial question, right? You should know that. But if you just reflect on that, you realize, my goodness, I have no idea. There's all kinds of things that I, I, that I want, but what would actually create the most happiness? I don't really know. So I think we need help in figuring out, you know, in the same way that in health, 
People don't tell you, go ahead and be as healthy. We give you advice. Cut down cholesterol, cut sugar. I mean, we tell you exactly how to live. I think money is no different. People need help to figure out what kind of things are maximizing our happiness and health. By the way, in these uh, stressful times when people are in small quarters with their significant others, stress is increasing, right? There are lots of new things, to ways to spend our time and money in a way that would also positively impact our health. So my hope is that banks would switch from places that we store money and make moving money more efficient to places that help us think better. Now, the startups like Capital are thinking about this. That kind of thinking, like being on the consumer side and helping people behave better, has not yet penetrated the large banks. But, you know, sometimes... Crisis help accelerate processes. I've been writing about it recently that, you know, this has been a real come to Jesus moment from the standpoint of all the things that were wrong with traditional financial institutions now really get caught. Um, everything from not being able to open accounts digitally, truly without using a branch, to the ability to save and to have people warn you about what may happen in the future. All these components, all these things that fintechs have been able to do and put together now, really, while people may have ignored them in the past, they're front and center. And for financial institutions, when they've faked it and talked about customer experience, when they faked it and talked about digital transformation, now they're getting caught where I call it the emperor has no clothes because you realize, geez, it, it wasn't exactly the way it looked. And, and we're seeing it with the small business relief plan by the government. You know, there's a lot of financial institutions blaming the government for the fact that the process isn't working smoothly. But there's a lot of financial institutions that are making it work very smoothly themselves. So it can't all be the government's fault if some people are making it work. So, you know, I think what you're saying also is now more than ever, there's a much bigger priority towards the use of data, AI, and digital technologies to make it so that better solutions come to the forefront. Absolutely. And let me give you an example. If you come to a standard bank to ask for a loan for a car, they ask you, how much do you want? And you tell them, and then they, let's say, lend you the money and so on. We created a, a calculator. And in the calculator, you could add what car you wanted, how much money, but it also forced you to look at the cost of ownership. The cost of ownership, including insurance and wear and tear and repair and taxes and so on. And all of a sudden, people who came and they thought they were going to want $20,000 worth of a car, realized the cost of ownership. And what did they do? They bought a less expensive car. Now you could say, oh, people should know all that. No, people don't. And you know, how could every individual figure it out for themselves? Very, very unlikely. So banks need to do an extra step, helping us understand the consequences of our financial actions and help us make better choices. So you had a TED Talk called Designing for Trust, where you talked about the fact that a lot of us take for granted the trust we have in entities and other people and all that. How do you think a, an event like COVID could possibly impact the level of trust we have in our financial institutions that really are possibly in many ways showing that they're not there when we need them the most? A good example is financial institutions that were more than willing to lend money to small businesses three weeks ago now have shut down the spigot in a lot of cases, and for good reason, 
But it's like uh, the stockbroker that always called you when things were going well, but haven't called you since three weeks ago when the market went south. How do you think events like COVID will impact trust we have in what can be considered some of the most trustworthy organizations in our lives? So trust, as you said correctly, is a crucially important lubricant for life, right? Think about how your life would look like if you didn't trust your significant other, or if you didn't trust uh, your neighbors who come in to, to check on you, or if you didn't trust your colleagues at work, right? We do all kinds of things with tremendous amount of trust. We leave our backpack like, I don't know if it ever happened to you, but, but in an airplane, you tell somebody, watch my bag, I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> what, what you're telling them is, this is the right time to steal my backpack. I'm, I'm going to be gone <laughs> for a few minutes. But we have this tremendous trust. But, but trust is very hard to create and very easy to destroy. And, you know, in, if you think about a bank and an individual, there's a real question of what's the relationship there. And if the relationship has trust, then... And look, here's one thing. Not enough Americans are declaring bankruptcy. What do I mean by that? Uh, if you calculated the number of Americans who just should say, fuck it, or you know something, yeah. I'm going to declare bankruptcy and I don't care about my debt, according to the rational theory, there should be many more who do that. But we don't. If you wrote somebody a check, even if times are hard, you're going to try to make good on that check. Honor is still important. And that's part of trust, right? Imagine that you and I signed a contract today and I promised you some payment of something and then there was some loophole or something I could avoid paying you. Legally, I could avoid paying you. You don't do it to people. We have this notion of respect to ourselves, to other people, respect to our words. It's really a blessing that we're not just kind of economic animals. You just say, what's my cost-benefit analysis and I, should I screw you over right now? But we don't have these relationships with entities that we don't think play the same game. So if you have a bank that I think the banker took a leap of faith and trusted me, I'm going to work harder to pay them back. And if it's a bank that I don't care so much about and I think they're just there to take advantage of the small print every time they can. If I'll get my chance, I'll screw them over. Now you can say maybe you don't have much chance to screw over banks, we, we do. And by the way, the same thing happened with insurance companies. I know we'll talk about it another time, but when people feel that the insurance companies never on their side, they exaggerate on their claims. Yeah. So there's lots of things like that. Which is interesting because you talk about building trust. Uh, an insurance company in the United States yesterday made a statement that they are now going to return a lot of the premiums for May and June for car payments because of the fact they realize people aren't driving as much. And they did that proactively. Now, that puts all the other insurance companies on notice going, you, you better come up with something because the word's going to get around. But there's a great example of saying, you know, we're collecting money the way we always have. We realize there's a really, I mean, people don't have to figure out too much about the fact that the possibility of loss has gone way down because I'm not in my car. And, and you realize for an institution to do that proactively builds that trust at a point where insurance companies are not necessarily the most trustworthy organizations out there. So we have a lot more to talk about, but I sadly have to run. 
And I do too. We will definitely get together again. I, I'd like to talk about the insurance business, but also about the uh, inequities that uh, between salaries and and senior executives and organizations and the government and how it all plays in. Because I know you've written a lot and talked a lot about that as well. But Dan, really enjoyed having you on the show today. And it's quite a treat. Thank you very much for calling in from Israel. I know that's one of your homes. And uh, it's not a bad place probably to be in Israel as opposed to being in, in New York City, your other home. So uh, that's right. good health and stay safe. Thank you very much. Same to you. What a great interview with Dan Ariely. I've been working quite a while trying to get this interview with Dan because he brings such insights to the table around behavioral economics, especially at this time, the time of COVID-19 crisis. It is amazing how consumer behavior as well as institutional behavior has changed. Based on his insights and with his reflections today, I think we can see that there's a lot of opportunity for growth. Consumer behavior may be driven more towards savings, even when there's less money available. In addition, financial institutions are going to find that the application of data and AI for the benefit of the consumer may pay off in both trust and new business. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Rated as a top five banking podcast. So many of you have taken the time to give our show a five-star rating. We really appreciate it. If you are not one of these people, we would still appreciate if you would give our show the five-star rating. While it only takes a minute, these ratings are very important as we try to expand the distribution of Banking Transformed to more potential listeners. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and our auto engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.